Oh, can you help me thank Philip and the team for just such a great time of worshiping Jesus together? I don't know about you, this is always a day where it sort of feels like, oh my goodness, it's, it's the end. We're, we're there and it's flown by in so many ways and my hope is that um, you would lean into this last day that you have with family, with friends, and not think about tomorrow and leaving, but be present here as long as God has you here. Will you do that? Three of you will. That's good enough for me, okay? Um, I sort of, uh, whenever I speak at camps like this, I try my best to keep my finger on the pulse of what God is doing and what seems to be resonating with people as I listen and talk with you at breaks and in between. And um, I'd actually like to, I'm switching a little bit of where I was planning on landing uh, our plane and in light of what it seems like God is doing in our midst. And so I'm actually going to give a message today that um, is going to zoom out a little bit from where we've been over the last few sessions together and sort of just say, in the grand landscape of all that God is doing in our world right now, how does the church fit in? Where, where does the church go over the next decade, two decades, three decades? What does it look like to be the faithful people of God in our day and our time? If you have your Bible, will you open with me to Acts chapter 4? The date was April 15th of 2019. I remember it vividly because one of my staff members walked into my office and said, are you watching the news? And I said to them, no, I'm working. What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, and I said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, you should go to your news app and look at what's going on because Notre Dame is on fire. Do you remember this day? And I can remember vividly sitting at my computer watching the live stream of Notre Dame on fire. And I can remember because I was standing in that grand cathedral about five months before that fire started. And I can remember standing on the ground looking up at the ceiling just captured by the grandeur of that place. Has anyone been there? Just the, the holiness of God and, and just seems to capture you when you walk in and you look up and you go, oh my God goodness. They started building Notre Dame in roughly 1137. It took about 800 years to build it, and we watched online or on TV as those memories and all that that building was sort of went up in smoke before our eyes. Now, if you were to go and you were to stand in the courtyard of Notre Dame, what you would find is a plaque there that says point zero. And Notre Dame is literally point zero in France. Everything else in, or in Paris, everything else in Paris is measured against or in relationship to Notre Dame. And so it was quite literally the way that the city was laid out was based around this grand cathedral. Now, you would have to go back in time a number of centuries and travel about 880 miles to figure out why that plaque is where it is. See, the church's rise to power really began in 313 at the Edict of Milan. It was when the, Christianity was made legal in the Roman Empire. 
And about a decade later, in 323, Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And it was at that time that Christianity started to gain notoriety and started to gain power and started to gain what we might call legitimacy in the Roman Empire. I mean, before that, Christians were being covered in tar and put on poles and lit on fire to light up the emperor's night parties, quite literally. So this is quite the change from being lit on fire to being the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so the Christianity started to taste power. They started to have buildings. They started to have political sway. They started to have trained clergy. And they enjoyed all the benefits of being quote-unquote legitimate. And that lasted in Europe for a number of centuries but in the mid-1700s, early 1700s, the churches started to experience persecution. And so in 1620, a group of religious pilgrims set sail to head to the New World. The quest was to find a place of religious freedom, not just for followers of Jesus, but for everybody. And at that New World, the church was really at the center point of it all once again, just like it was in France. I mean, if you were to drive down the street in most small towns in America and even go to most urban centers, do you know what you'd find on Main Street? Church. You'd find a church. Uh, it was quite literally the center at the center of town. It wasn't just a contributor to society. It was a creator of society. And this was an intentional symbol of what our culture valued. And it was a picture of who and what had the power. Now, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic, and pastors have been accused of that, okay? Um, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic when I say that this day is no more. That the church at the center point of society, that day has passed in the West, and now what we see is that churches in downtown urban areas are being turned into bars and pubs. Notre Dame had more influence as a tourist attraction than it did as a church for hundreds of years. Many followers of Jesus are getting edged out of the public square because of their faith in Jesus. The idea that the church is an important contributor to society is anathema. In our day and our time, Christianity seems to be viewed more as a nuisance or a straitjacket than it does as an important contributor to society. Do you, do, you, do you sense this in our cultural moment? In their recent book, Good Faith, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons argued that those outside of the church view the church as irrelevant and extreme. That, that's people's viewpoint of, of, of maybe who you are. The rise of enlightenment and humanism, secularism and individualism has caused a dramatic change in the fabric of our society. And it started around the mid-20th century when the church found itself being left behind. And I'm not talking about the Kirk Cameron kind of left behind, okay? See, the rise of the moral majority was the church's last-ditch effort to try to hold on to power but it turned out that the moral majority was neither moral, all that moral, nor the majority in the end. And the, that 
power that the church had enjoyed for so many years just started to slip through its hands like it was grasping at a mist or a vapor. The power that the church once enjoyed started to become a relic of the past rather than a reality of the present. And so, um, I wonder if you're, if you're going, wow, Ryan, I'm really glad I came this morning. Um, just hold on, because this is actually a really hopeful message, but I think we need to grasp where we really are today if we're going to move forward in a healthy way. And I think we have two options in front of us. I really do. I think we can continue to try to cling to power as a way to make things happen. That's the way that the church has gone about things um, in some ways for the last 1,700 years. But it wasn't always the way the church went about things. It wasn't always the way the church operated. I think we need to get back to something that's not so new and not so normal. See, I believe that there's a lie that's crept into the church, and the lie is this, that we need to be point zero in order to have influence. We need to be at the center of society in order to have influence. And, and, and really, that's, that's the way of power. And here's what power means. Power means you're on top. Power means you get to make the decisions. Power means you have the credentials. Power means what you want to have happen, happens. It means people look up to you. In the ancient world, power meant that you held the sword. In our modern world, it often means that you hold the pen and you get to make the decisions that everybody else falls in line with. And I think we've had this quest for power for far too long. Let me give you an example. In 1962, the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in schools and churches followers of Jesus, we went to battle for that. We said, no, 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 you can't take prayer out of public schools. And I'm not saying that that decision was either right or wrong, but I am saying that there's a different path that the church could have taken. The church could have pulled their kids aside and said, they can't take prayer out of public schools. You can pray wherever you are. You can prayer walk your halls every single day. Do it. You can gather people to pray do it. And we tried to legislate it because we believe it needs to be legislated in order to be legitimate. Instead of teaching our kids, no, wherever you are, the presence of Jesus is because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we wanted to fight for power, holding on to the power rather than saying, we don't need power to have influence. And see, here's what I really just want us to grasp this morning is that influence is different than power. Influence is the ability to affect change in someone or something in an indirect or subversive but very important way. Typically, it comes from a position of humility rather than being on top. See, to have influence, there is no position necessary, no platform necessary, no power necessary. Influence is subversive. And here's what we know, you guys. Here's what we know. The people that have had the deepest impact in our lives are often people who have had very little power, but have had significant influence. If that's true, will you just raise your hand? Think about the people that have impacted you. Yeah, it's, it's true. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of his church, I believe this is of the utmost importance because I think we need to shift the script 
I think we need a different playbook going forward. I don't think that getting back to the glory days, and when we think of the glory days of like the 1950s, like, I don't think that's the goal. Like, please hear me. I think we need to get back, but I don't think 1950 is far enough. I think we need to get back to what the early church was doing, because I completely agree with what Chip Ingram said on day one, that we are living in a time that's more like the first century than the last century. Or to say it like this, we are living in a world that's more akin to the world of the original disciples than my grandparents. And so why not use their playbook? Why not do what they did? And here's the deal. You want to hear some really, really good news this morning? Three of you do? Okay, great. Here's some really good news. The early church had zero social power, but gained massive, massive influence. No seat on the Sanhedrin, no buildings to meet in, no rights to protect them, no standing that garnered them respect, no official training, and yet, when Luke writes about the impact of the early church, here's what he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. They turned the world upside down. They changed the world that they were living in. And if you only write down one thing this morning, would you write down this? You can have a massive influence without having a position of power. You can have massive influence without having a position of power. Now, the question, I think, becomes how and what does that look like? And I, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you what the early church expected, what they prioritized, and what they were committed to, okay? What the early church expected, what they prioritized, and what they were committed to that allowed them to have massive influence without having a position of power. Acts chapter 4. So here's the context. Jesus has been um, crucified. He's been raised from the dead. Remember, he spends a number of weeks teaching his disciples. Uh, In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says the Holy Spirit will come. The Holy Spirit does come upon the believers, and they are empowered to live out the gospel of the kingdom And then in Acts chapter 3, we see the church starting to exhibit what it's going to be about. It says, starting in verse 6, Peter's walking along. He's on his way to church to uh, a meeting in the temple courts. And here's how the story goes, verse 6. It says, and Peter sees a man who's along the side of the road who um, isn't able to walk. And he asks him for money. And Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give to you. I I love that he doesn't stop there and say, hey, sorry, I don't have what you're asking for. He says, "I I don't have what you're asking for, but I do have something else that you might be interested in. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. See, if you're in a position of power and you do this, people go, awesome, amazing. If you're not in a position of power, 
people take offense to this and people are put on guard because, oh, there's, there is a new type of influence that's in town. And this event is going to launch into motion everything that we're going to read and study this morning. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It's right after this event. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. See, these are all the groups that have power, right? Priests, captain of the temple, the Sadducees. They came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, if you have your own Bible, circle greatly annoyed. Greatly annoyed. Hey, the early church was not expecting that people would roll out the red carpet for them. They weren't expecting a fair, quote-unquote, fair environment. They were expecting pushback. They were expecting persecution. They were expecting opposition. It's the first thing that we see. What, what is their expectation? Well, their expectation is we're going to meet resistance. The way of Jesus has always met resistance. In fact, it was Jesus himself who was giving his disciples a pep talk and listen to what he said to them. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, I'm one of Jesus' disciples. I have about 100 questions I'd like to ask. But if I only get one, here's what I'm asking. Jesus... Didn't you mix up your metaphor? Aren't we the wolves and they're the sheep? Like we're going to go and we're going to be victorious and we're going to, it's going to be a bloodbath, but we're not going to be on the bad end of that. We're going to dominate because we have you behind us. Isn't that the way that we often think of it? God, if you're for us, who can be against us? We're wolves. And Jesus goes, no, 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 that's not the way that it's going to work. I mean, Jesus gives the worst pregame brave heart speech ever given. Why? Why? Because he wants his disciples to be ready. He doesn't want them to shrink back when life gets hard. He doesn't want them to tap out when they're on the ground. He wants them to keep going. He wants them to develop what we might call grit or stick to which can we agree is fairly rare in our day and our time. I used to, when I talked to college students, I used to say, man, we are the tap out generation. When things get hard, we're like, we're done, we're out. It's hard, God must not be in it. No, please hear me. Just because it's difficult does not mean God is not in it. And I think we need to shift the script. We need to expect that there will be opposition. And we need to know that our capacity to endure pain may very well be the thing that determines our future potential. In fact, let me say that again. Our capacity to endure pain may very well be the thing that determines our future potential potential. So Peter doesn't back down. He doesn't tap out. And in fact, listen to his reasoning for continuing to preach about Jesus. Here's what he says. Jump down to verse 19. It says, and Peter and John answered them, whether it's right for, right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
You can take that up with God, he says. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And now we are catapulted right into modern day Christianity in the U.S. I mean, how many of you have been in discussions in the last 12 months or so about civil disobedience? <laughs> what does it look like to be the church when we're told we can't meet? And I thought, well, what, a, what a great model Peter lays out for us. I mean, there's a few things that stand out to me in the church's approach to civil disobedience. First, their disobedience springs forth from a prohibition about speaking about Jesus. And they go, listen, listen, listen. If you're going to tell us we can't speak about Jesus, we want to respect you, but we're sorry, we can't follow that. We can't follow that. I think a lot of our discussions about civil disobedience have to do with things other than actually speaking about Jesus. For the early church, though, it was, no, we cannot help but talk about what we have seen and what we have heard. But second, and please catch this, Mount Hermon, please catch this. Because of their context, they didn't assume they had the right to do anything. So their engagement was way more around the content of their message than it was around the legitimacy of their platform. And see, here's, here's the last thing. They accepted Whatever came their way because of their disobedience. They said, if that's the punishment, we'll take it. We're not going to push back against it. We're not going to be defensive. We're not going to retaliate. We're not going to get offended. Um, we're going to do exactly what our Messiah did, who he uttered not a word when he was wrongfully accused. They responded the same way Jesus did. So when you and I, when we expect opposition, we respond to it differently, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. And what if, what if, the way that we respond when we are wronged is a part of the message that we give? What if it's all part of the message? The, post, the, the tone of the post online, it's part of the message. The glance in the hall, it's a part of the message. The way that we interact after people disagree with us, it's a part of the message. It all counts. And I love it. I can't really explain it, but I know that it's true. Every time the church faces persecution, it seems to flourish. I mean, I wish it were the other way around, right? Like, that when it's smooth sailing, the church just takes off. But the truth of the matter is, when the church is persecuted, the church flourishes. Um, if you want a great book to read, about the persecuted church, read Nick Rippon's book, The Insanity of God. And in it, he, starts to, he interviews people who are part of these movements of God in persecuted areas, and he starts to just grasp onto and distill why it is that churches flourish in China underground, right? And I think there's two things that really start to stand out. One is you can't ride the fence with Jesus when you're in a moment of persecution, you're either in or you're out. One of the quotes in that book that just caught my heart was when Rippon was interviewing a member of a persecuted church and, and this member wanted to impart something to you and to me. He said, don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. 
I mean, that's like, we are in on this. This isn't anecdotal. This isn't sort of uh, an addition to our life. This is central to who we are. But here's the second thing that happens. When the church is persecuted, it always gets more clear about its mission. And that happens when we go through hard times, when we go through difficult times, and that's exactly what we see in Peter's message. It says, and they were teaching people, verse 2, and proclaiming in Jesus, would you say this with me, Mount Hermon? The resurrection from the dead. The early church had a very clear message. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, one day we will be too. And so, and so, because they didn't have the power, because they were longing for influence, they distilled the message to say, if we could only talk about one thing, what will we talk about? And they said, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about, instead of defending everything, we are going to talk about the resurrection. And in talking about the resurrection, they are talking about what is central to the gospel. In fact, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my, what? Gospel. He's saying, this is the good news. Jesus has conquered sin and death and evil, and in him you will too. Now, it's striking that their message didn't include, now, now they got onto this at some point, but the original message, when they were in a moment of persecution and hardship, the message did not include a defense of the Bible, no critique of Rome, they didn't comment on the sexual exploits of the people outside of the church. No, their message was simple. Christ is risen and so will we. If they had an early church had a Twitter account, it would have been all Jesus all the time. And here's the second thing that we see. So we have expectations and then we have, which is we will be persecuted. And then priorities, we've got to clarify our priorities. We've got to clarify our message. Would you agree that there are times when our priorities can get fairly twisted? I don't know about you, but this COVID season has shown me some of the ways that my priorities got twisted. Um, I, I had a season when um, I was in college and um, I was living on my own for the very first time. So I was that guy that Chip talked about who didn't know what to do with his money. Anybody with me? Okay. And so I remember we had a meeting with the guys in my house and we had a certain amount of money, and we had to decide, are we going to get trash service, or are we going to get digital cable? <laughs> and I'm proud to tell you, we did not miss a Bronco game that year. <laughs> we learned the hard way how important some of those things are. Our priorities were just off, but I think for some of us, we've realized in this COVID season, gosh, our priorities have been messed up. The way that we're managing our time has been messed up. And it's in seasons of persecution, seasons of hardship, where we start to have more of a vision of God. Here's the, what you have called us to focus on. It's the mom and the dad who hug their kids a little bit tighter at night after the car accident. The bad diagnosis from the doctor that brings a family closer together. Getting laid off where you go, I've got to make a budget. Or maybe even you look at the statistics of church attendance the weekend after 9-11 when they shot up 25% where people are going, God really is important. God really is important. 
And this is what happens to the early church. They clarify their priorities. And listen to the way that Peter continues to unpack this priority of lifting Jesus high. He says this, verse 10, and let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, just a quick time out, Peter's not making any friends here, right? He's saying, listen, this Jesus who I'm talking about, if you're wondering, is he the same Jesus we killed a few weeks earlier? Answer is yes. He didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, okay? But by him, this man is standing before you well, this man who was healed. He was healed because of Jesus. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. And then he says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we read this today and we go, doesn't really fit in our culture. Like Peter, if it were a few hundred years later, you wouldn't say something like that. And, and can we just tell you, it was just as controversial in Peter's day as it is in ours. That in, the, in a Roman polytheistic world, you could add another god to the pantheon, no big deal. But to say there's only one, to say there's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. That was just as controversial in Peter's day as it is in our day. Listen, they all wanted to coexist too, just like we do. And so comments like this, statements like this, rub against that desire. We want all roads to lead to God. We want to believe that's true, don't we? A lot of people do. And there's this analogy, you may have heard it, there's this analogy uh, that originated in India, it's been used in Buddhist and Hindu and Sufi context, and here's the analogy that God is sort of like an, an elephant. And every religion is sort of grabbing a different part of the elephant and describing it, right? So like one religion's grabbing the leg and saying, oh, it's, God is sort of like this. The other grabbing the ears and God is sort of like this. Another, the tusk and God is sort of like this. And someone's on the back going, oh, God is a little bit like that. And the point of the analogy is, listen, we are all talking about the same God. We're just talking about the same God in different ways. It makes everybody feel good. The logic of it, though, doesn't work out. I love the way that Tim Keller pointed out the flaw. He says this, how could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed none of the religions have? Friends, it breaks down. And when Peter says Jesus is the only name under heaven given by which men must be saved, he is simply echoing the words of Jesus, who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I just, I love you enough, and I get to leave tomorrow. I love you enough to tell you 
that in the midst of a culture that wants to tell you, oh, it's all, let's just all hold hands and let's all sing kumbaya and everybody's okay and it's gonna be all good, the scriptures are very, very clear. There is only one name under heaven given by which men must be saved and his name is Jesus and he loves you enough to take your sin and my sin upon his shoulders to carry it into the ground, to die on our behalf in our place, taking the full penalty of sin, which is death, conquering it and raising with new life in his hands. He loves you enough to go there for you and to do that on your behalf. And I, I think as a church, capital C Church, we are in a season where we need to get back to making the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. It is all about him. Let's allow secondary issues to be just that, secondary issues. But if we have one platform, let's make it Jesus. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered evil because he loves us. Let's make it about him. Amen? But the church wasn't just about proclaiming Jesus. They were also about manifesting the power of Jesus. Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. See, he, here's what he's doing. He's giving us our third perspective. So the first is expect opposition. The second is clarify our priorities. Make it all about Jesus. And then he's saying, listen, if, if we are being called to give an account for good deeds done in the name of Jesus, guilty. Did it. We did it. And he's showing us the next thing. It's the commitment to love. To be an invasive force for good. Now friends, the, the church is called to be an agent of shalom and good, not just for people who agree with her, but for all people. People who are bound in sin. People who are struggling. The church is designed to be a healing balm for the community in which it's placed. I love that verse 9 says, he goes, he goes, listen, if we're being charged to give an account for this, we are guilty. But look at what Peter did. Look at what Peter did. As he's walking into church, he hears the pain and the needs of the people. Do you hear the pain and the needs of the people in your community? He stops what he's doing, and what he was doing was what? He, well, he was, when he sees this man crippled along the side of the road, he's on his way to church. He's going to church. He's doing his religious thing, and he goes, well, God, the people here need to hear about you. So the, the, going to church is secondary to the people who you love. He stops what he's doing. He calls on Jesus to work, believing that Jesus heals and that Jesus has power. And then he steps into the gap with confidence. What if the church corporate started to live that out? Oh, man. Hear the cry. Stop what we're doing. Call on Jesus. Step into the gap. Please hear me. Please hear me, Mount Hermon. You can be a follower of Jesus without rights, but you cannot be a follower of Jesus without love. 
You can be a follower of Jesus without rights, but you cannot be a follower of Jesus without love. And can I just tell you, as a pastor, it breaks my heart that in so many pockets and circles, the church is known way more for what it's against than for what it's for. I mean, you know that our history is followers of Jesus, right? Like, that hasn't always been the case. Like, we created some of the first hospitals, we were creators and curators of the arts. We were advocates, advocates for literacy, for education, for equality, for the protection of children. We were the people who said every person is created in the image of God and they matter. Like That's our history. I'm just calling us back, not to the 1950s, but to the first century. And I get it. Some will argue, you can't be the church if you just focus on good deeds. And I would say, amen to that. But you can't be the church if you don't have good deeds. I mean, this is just straight out of the mouth of Jesus, you guys. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Oh, what if the church of tomorrow made it their goal to be put on trial for good deeds done in the name of Jesus? I read about a church who on July 21st, so just last week, a church in New Mexico paid off $1.4 million of medical debt that people in its community was wrestling with. I'm like, amen, that's living this out. But we can do this on micro levels too. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches? What if we started not just to preach the good news, which we should and we need to, but also to live it out, to live it out? We'll close with this. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, <laughs> and they were astonished. Now just just quick time out. I'm running out of time, so I can't spend too much time on this. I'd want to. Um, but this isn't a compliment. <laughs> like, these guys are a little bit backwoods. Is that a Galilean accent? Like, where did they get their education? Right, they're over three on that. And here's what they said. And they recognized that they had, would you just say it with me, Mount Hermon? They had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And we live in a digital age where information is everything. And we think what people need is more information. And we think, if I'm going to share the good news of Jesus, I've got to have all the answers, and I've got to be able to answer every single question that somebody is going to ask. And I just want to say gently to you, you'll never be able to answer every single question that someone is going to ask. And maybe, just maybe, people don't need your answers, but they need your presence. And maybe they don't just need your presence, but they need Jesus' presence. And what they need is for you to be so saturated in the presence of Jesus that you carry his aroma with you everywhere you go. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So that when we show up, people go, there's something different about those people. And the difference isn't they know all the answers. The difference is they carry the aroma of Christ because when we are in the presence of God, we start to carry his aroma of love, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy with us. I call this the subway effect. When you go into subway and you order a sandwich at lunch, do you know what you smell like five hours later? 
subway, right? But here's the truth. When we spend time in the presence of Jesus, we carry his aroma with us. And friends, more than anything, your family needs you to carry the aroma of Jesus. Your spouse needs you to carry the aroma of Jesus. Your kids need you to, you could check all the other boxes, but if you don't carry his aroma, if you don't carry his presence, we have missed the boat. So we've got to organize our lives around being with Jesus so that we can become like Jesus, so that we can eventually do the things that Jesus does. And I believe that the church of the future must enter the world saturated with the presence of God because influence is found in carrying Jesus' presence, not in having the right platform. So what if we, as our way forward, what if we expected opposition? What if we prioritized Jesus? What if we committed to love? And what if we said, we are gonna shape our lives around being in Jesus' presence so that when people meet us, they say, those people are different. Those people are different. And so you might be like the person who's sitting along the side of the road today whose life is just broken and hurting I want to say to you, there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. You might be here at family camp at Mount Hermon, and you have never made the decision to trust Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Today is your day. He is calling you to himself. And you may have been in the church for decades and decades and decades. And if that's you, I am calling on you and begging you, let's shift the script. Let's not make it about having power. Let's believe that through Jesus, we can have influence even if we don't have point zero as ours. On April 15th, 2019, Notre Dame was on fire. But there's a different kind of fire that was spreading all throughout the Middle Eastern world. It was a movement in Iran of churches led primarily by women, oftentimes illiterate, with no buildings, with very little training, and with absolutely zero power, focused on a few things. Jesus, what does your word say, and how do we obey it? And that fire continues to burn in the most beautiful of ways. And I would submit to you that more people have become followers of Jesus through this movement in Iran than did for a few hundred years in Notre Dame. Let's be like that church. Jesus, I wanna lift up the people in this room that feel like they're sort of along the side of that proverbial highway calling out. And Lord, if there's anybody here for the first time is saying, God, I wanna put my faith in you. Lord, would you just stir them, woo them, call them to yourself? If that's you, I just invite you to call out to Jesus. Tell him you love him. Tell me you want to worship him. Tell me you're repenting of your sin, trusting in his forgiveness. Ask him to give you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to remind you of his teaching and of his love. 
Give your life to him. And Lord, for those of us who have been following you for maybe a really, really long time and we're in a a certain way of being the church, Lord, I pray that you would break us out of our way, lead us back to the way of the early church, a way of influence rather than power. Lord, help us to be people who expect opposition so we're not thrown off when it comes. Help us be people who are committed to love. And Lord, would you help us to be the kind of people who prioritize you, Jesus, and your gospel over all. If we're known about for one thing, may it be that we're known for being about you. Amen.